Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Well, good morning. We continue our series through Second Chronicles. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Second Chronicles. We're going to look at chapters 5 through 7. Most of our time will be in chapter 6, so you can turn to Second Chronicles chapter 6. Uh, if you're anything like me, you enjoy memes. Uh, <laughs> I'm always amazed at the, the, the gift of humor and comedy that God has given to those in His image and the creativity that I, that you, I often see. It's quite remarkable. And then I also wonder, where do they get the time? Uh, to <laughs> Is that why the rand is weakening? Everyone's making, making memes? Uh, I'm not sure. But one of the memes, uh, there's sort of a category of them that I quite enjoy is this one that says, if I won the lottery, I wouldn't tell anyone, but there would be signs. <laughs> and uh, one where it's you know, a much thicker slice of polony uh, in, uh, in the sandwich. Well, this, this passage, I think what I want us to see is if God were to manifest himself in a powerful way, what would the signs be? How would we know if God is at work in a powerful way? Because this passage, you know, people, I've heard people use that phrase, you know, God showed up. Um, and so the people say, you know, I, I didn't have money to pay rent, but God showed up and I was able to, to pay. Uh, in this passage, we're going to see that God shows up in a powerful way. And throughout history, God has done this. Uh, God is omnipresent. That means he is everywhere. But at times, he manifests himself in, in special ways, uh, in specific locations, and he's done this throughout history. Generally, we call that a revival uh, or a reformation. Those are times when God works in a, in a specially powerful and dramatic way. And you know, if I were to ask you, what, what do you think it would look like if God were to show up in a powerful way in our midst? I'm not talking about him appearing uh, something like that. We're waiting for that to happen when he returns in glory and sets up a new heaven and new earth. That, that will happen. But if his spirit works in an especially powerful way, what would that look like? Some people might think, well, uh, we would all be rich suddenly, maybe. Um, or we would no, have no more health problems. No one would get sick in, in our church or in, in Johannesburg. Maybe you think there would be lots of emotion, lots of crying, uh, or... Uh, no more problems in life. Everything would just flow smoothly. Uh, you would, your boss would just be wonderful. All your relationships would work. I think maybe that's what a lot of people think. If God were to really work in a powerful way, our problems would all go away. But what we find in Scripture is something different. Uh, there are certain things that show us that God is working in a powerful way. And this passage, I believe, this is the passage about the dedication of the temple... 
shows us some of these elements and really things that we should be longing for and crying out to God for. So let's first see, uh, you know, set the scene a little bit. Look at chapter 5, verse 1 of Second Chronicles. Uh, we're told there the chronicler says, Thus all the work that Solomon did for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated and stored the silver, the gold, and all the vessels in the treasuries of the house of God. So if you were here a few weeks ago when we looked at the previous chapters about the building of the temple and we, we looked at God's uh, love of beauty and art and all of these things, that gave us a description of the building. The building is now completed. Solomon's temple is finished and now they're just, it's the, it's the, the, the final sort of fine-tuning. They're bringing in all the, the gold and silver implements that they're going to use. They also bring the Ark of the Covenant to, to the temple. Remember, it was in a tent, in the tent of meeting from Moses' time. And now they're bringing it into the temple, into the holiest of holies. And that's described for us in chapter 5. And this is a huge event on a massive scale, unprecedented scale in the history of Israel. Uh, look at verse 6. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel, a favorite phrase of the chronicler, symbolizing the unity of Israel. Remember, he's trying to encourage his audience to be united, the original uh, hearers of this, this uh, history. He's trying to encourage them. So he says, all Israel is there. They assemble before Solomon uh, and, and they before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Okay. So it's on, a, on a, a lavish, huge scale. They lose count of how many animals are sacrificed to the Lord. It's one of those events, you know, if you had been there, you would remember it to the day that you died. You know, maybe there's, there's moments like that, maybe a funeral of some great person or, uh, you know, one of our teams wins the World Cup and you're at the, the parade or something like that, something that you remember. It's a meaningful moment. People would have remembered this event. And the thing that's most important is that God presences himself in a powerful way. So that's the first thing that I want us to look at, God's presence so look at verse 13 of chapter 5. We're told that the house of the Lord, that's the temple, was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister before the, because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. And so uh, his glory is manifested through this cloud that fills the temple. God is saying, this is my house. Even the priests have to, have to step away and move out of the temple. And then jump down to chapter 7, verse 1. We're told there as soon as Solomon finished his prayer. So as I said to you, chapter 6 is, is uh, the main focus. But after Solomon's prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And so uh, Solomon's prayer is bracketed by these two accounts, this cloud that fills the temple so that people cannot, the priests cannot go in. And then this fire that comes and consumes the sacrifices. And again, the priests are not able to, to go in. So if I were to say to you, cloud, 
and fire. And if you know your Bibles, it might remind you of uh, some other Old Testament examples. So don't feel bad if you can't remember them. Just need to read your Bible more. Okay. Uh, well, cloud and fire in the Old Testament is what symbolizes the presence of God. Okay. So probably, if you if if you uh, have some familiarity with the Old Testament, you might well be thinking of the Exodus. And so that's the most famous example. The Exodus is the place where we have Exodus thirteen says this. Remember, the children of Israel are in the wilderness. And uh, verse 21 says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. And so there's these two pillars, a cloud and fire. But earlier on in Genesis chapter 15, we have what, what is called the Abrahamic covenant. where Abraham is told to cut these animals in half. And he expects that he has to walk between them. It was, it was the ancient Near Eastern form of making a covenant. You would cut an animal in half. So if you were making an agreement, a covenant with someone, you would cut an animal in half. And then you would both, both parties would walk between the pieces of the animal, signifying if we don't keep our promises to each other, may this happen to us. Okay, what happened to this animal may happen to us. Very similar to how as children we would say, you know, Cross my heart, hope to die. Okay, um, I wonder how many children have. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking grateful those those didn't always uh, work out like that. But that's sort of the idea, and Abraham doesn't go through. But what does go through? Verse 17 of Genesis 15 says, "When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot, so smoke or a cloud." And a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And remember, it is God who is making the covenant. And so here is, again, the symbolism of God's presence. In fact, the Jews would refer to the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire as the legs of God. And so here in this passage, very clear, it's obvious, but I'm just giving you some extra information. God has manifested himself, presenced himself in a powerful way at the dedication of the temple. God is there. He is everywhere, but here in a special way, he is revealing himself and his glory. Now, what does that that mean? What are the signs with that? Well, as this happens, Solomon begins to, to pray. Appropriate response and prayer is very important to the chronicler. And I think one of the signs that God is at work, certainly one of the signs that God is at work, is that we will be a praying people. A people that seek the Lord, that cry out to the Lord. We can't say, well, I'm, I'm close to the Lord, but I never talk to him. Uh, I, I don't cry out to him. I don't seek his face. And Solomon begins to pray. And verse 18, he asks this question in the midst of his, as he's talking, he says, But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. But what a question. Will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? You see, Solomon is trying to understand this. This is incredible. Will God come and dwell with us? Will God dwell with man on the earth? Remember that God 
did do that in the beginning. We're told in Genesis, before sin entered into the world, that God would, in the cool of the day, meet with Adam and Eve, and they would walk in the garden and communicate. And we're not told too much, but it must have been glorious and incredible. Communing with God face to face. Absolute paradise. And every single one of us uh, have that a longing for that. Because ultimately it is relationships that give meaning to life. Isn't that right? Uh, it's to be loved and to love. And again, as we've said before many times, we, we're not able to satisfy those deepest longings because of our sin and our fallenness. And because we are finite and our hearts are infinite, aren't they? You can throw the whole world, the whole universe into your heart and it won't satisfy. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? If you had every cent on the planet, you would not be satisfied. If you had every experience on the planet, you would not be satisfied. If you had all the power on the planet, you would not be satisfied. As Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. Our hearts were made for God. And only God can satisfy them. And so that longing for God to dwell with us, for us to be able to live with God. And that is the promise that Christianity holds out. That in the new heaven and new earth, we will live in the presence of God. And we won't be destroyed because of our sin. Because we'll have glorified bodies without sin. That can live in the presence of God. And that deepest longing of our souls will be satisfied at perfect intimacy with our Creator. And all eternity will just continue to uh, exponentially increase in joy and satisfaction forever and ever. Because God is infinite, so it's never going to reach an end. It's never going to plateau. It won't be after a trillion years, well, that's it, sorry, you know. You've plumbed the depths of who I am. There's nothing more to learn. There's no more pleasures to experience. That's the end of it. For all eternity, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, we will continue to glory and rejoice in the pleasure and joy of knowing God. And so Solomon is saying, will God, will God live with us on earth? And that is the promise throughout the scriptures. They will be my people and I will be their God. That is the hope that we, that we have. And so when God shows up, we put it that way, one of the first things is prayer. We'll be a praying people. You can know God is working in your life if you're, a, if you're praying. I hope you find that convicting. I do. To say, Lord... Please work more. Going through Romans in our corporate Bible studies. And you know, Paul says there, be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer. To be a praying people. Always talking to the Lord. Bringing everything to Him. We're told there in verse 12 how Solomon stands there before the altar of the Lord. And he spread out his hands. And there was a, a bronze platform made so he could... Uh, stand and then he kneels before the people. Then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven. And the focus of this prayer, as you go through it, is sin and repentance. 
That is the bulk of his prayer. He deals with the sin of individuals and the sin of Israel. And for them to cry out to God and to repent. And so that is the next feature. If God is working in our midst, if God manifests himself in a powerful way, if God is working in your life as an individual, the primary thing, I would argue, probably, is that you will be aware of your sin. When God is at work, people become aware of their sin. Not how amazing they are, not more self-esteem or self-confidence. When God works, people are broken. Okay? Think of Isaiah. When he comes into the presence of God, chapter 6, he's pronounced all these woes on Israel. Six of them, and we're waiting for the seventh one. I wonder where the seventh one is. And then Isaiah is in the presence of God, and he says, Woe is, is me. <laughs> I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. I'm undone. I'm finished. It's, it's the idea of he's falling apart. I'm undone. I'm collapsing in the presence of God. I realize my sin. I'm a man of unclean lips. What does that mean? Well, out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks, doesn't it? James will talk of the tongue. But what's the real issue? It's not your tongue. You can cut your tongue out. It's the heart. It's the tongue that reveals what's in the heart, what we love, what we treasure. And so in the presence of God, he realizes his sin. And that's what Solomon does. You would think, well, there's so many things he could pray. God has manifest himself in the temple. What, what do you think he would think about? And what does he think about? Sin. Lord, have mercy upon us. When we sin, may we repent and please forgive us. And if God is working, and this is what our cry is, God, work here at Heritage, work in Johannesburg, work in our country, work in our continent, work in the world. And we know God is working when people start to know their sin. That's how you know. When people become aware of their sin. And this, I just want us to look at some of the examples and to draw some lessons. We're going to really do a, a bird's eye view. Um, just simply to say this though. Israel was a nation under God. Okay? They were the people of God, but they were also an ethnic group and a nation, a country. Uh, with a political system. With a, a monarch. Okay? So the, the, the consequences are different to what they are for us. Okay, so this is important. Uh, we'll discuss it more next week, Lord willing, when we look at maybe one of the most misused verses about if my people who are called by my name will call upon me, then I'll heal their land. How often people use that to say, you know, South Africa, we can heal South Africa. But South Africa is not God's people. Jumping ahead, that's a bonus. You still have to come next week. Okay? <laughs> there's, not, there's no more Christian nations. Okay? Very, very important. Christian nationalism, all of these things, it's not in the scriptures. There's no such thing. There's never, since ethnic Israel at that time and after the new covenant, there's no more Christian nation or people of God ethnically. The people of God are Jews and Gentiles who put their trust in Jesus Christ and are saved and are part of local churches. The church is the people of God. Okay? 
So I'm just going to draw out some principles. I'm not going to focus in on the minutiae. What does it mean, famines and all of that? How does that apply to us? Just as you get the principle, there will be times when God chastens his people. So the first thing he prays, verse 22, he says, If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar on this house, then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, repaying the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteousness, the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. The first case is one where someone has sinned against another but is refusing to acknowledge it. They're not confessing it. They're not earning it. And obviously there weren't enough witnesses. So you couldn't go and say, hey, what happened here? So what would happen in the Old Testament is uh, you would come before the priests and make an oath. Really a self-malediction. What we were saying earlier, if, uh, cross my heart, hope to die. It would be something like that. You would say, I did not do this thing. I didn't steal from my neighbor. And if I'm lying, may... I die. Okay? Something like that. Uh, and so it's what Solomon is saying, he's saying, Solomon is saying, Lord, if 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 there is sin and people are not willing to confess it and deal with it in your people, may you deal with it. And so that's what's the application for us. That we would deal with sin in our midst, and that God would bring sin to light. Unrepentant sin. You see that in the early church, in the book of Acts, which we've been going through. And there is no doubt God was powerfully at work, wasn't he? In the early church. The Holy Spirit was at work, manifesting himself. And what do we see? Ananias and Sapphira. Their sin is exposed and God judges them. Acts 5.11 And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Solomon is saying, Lord, deal with sin in your, in your people. When God is at work, sin will be exposed. And fear should come upon all of us. No, no. Who, who yeah, wants their sin to be exposed? We don't want that. So then repent of it and deal with it. Because when God starts to work, it's going to be exposed. Rather, you deal with it. You bring it to the light. You walk in light. You confess it. You turn from it before God does it. But one of the things is, when God is working, sin will be exposed. Verse 24. If your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you. So again... The enemies were physical. Uh, they had the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Philistines, the Babylonians, the Assyrians. They were surrounded by other nations. And these nations would vie for, for, for land and power and resources. And God says, I'll protect you. But if you don't walk in my ways, if you don't obey me, then you will be defeated. And so he says that if, if we're defeated because of sin... But if we turn again and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, this is important. Solomon keeps saying, if, if, if the people turn back to the temple, to the presence of God, for us, we don't, we don't face 
north <laughs> to Jerusalem. Okay. We don't, have, we, don't, we don't have to go and pray to a geographical location because who is the temple? Jesus Christ. For us, it's we look to Christ. You don't need to come through a priest who will say, you know, you're forgiven. Uh, you know, go and use holy water or whatever. No, you, you don't need another person. You turn to Christ to, for forgiveness. You pray to Him. He is the temple. And so we turn to Him. Now, what does that mean from, for us? What does it mean? What, what wars are we involved in? Well, if you've been here over this series, hopefully you know by now that when we come to the New Testament, we don't fight flesh and blood. Okay? Uh, that as Christians, that's not how we advance the kingdom. That's not our, our role. Uh, that's, that's not our battle. Okay? We're not called to go and you know, physically fight non-Christians. That's not what we're called to. What is our fight? Our fight is against sin. Every day, if you're walking with the Lord, you'll know you'll be tempted to sin. That's a fight every single day. Not to get sinfully angry. Not to covet what other people have. Not to be jealous when you get to work and you see that your work colleague just got a new car. Or you, you, you get to work and there's, you know, the announcement. The other person got the promotion. And you're thinking, but they're useless. <laughs> I should have got it. I've been here much longer, all of these things. That's a battle to fight bitterness, lust, greed, all of those things. That's the fight. And the fight is against false worldviews and false philosophies that exalt themselves against the name of God. Wrong thinking about gender about sexuality, about marriage, about the government, about the church, about what it means to be a Christian. All of these things are we're bombarded all the time. That's the battle in our minds and our hearts. So we are at war. But if you, if you start sinning, God will let you lose those battles. Do you know that? David's the example. David should have been fighting. Instead, he's sleeping in. Okay? And he falls for Bathsheba. God didn't help him. He let him fall. There's other times in David's life where God stopped him from sinning because he was fighting. Okay? When I sin, I, I find it helpful to do a post-mortem. I think it's important to do that. To say, okay, but why did I do that? What happened? What were the triggers? What was the situation? What led to that? Had I become proud and self-confident? I thought, I don't need to... You know, you, in military terms, you drop your, your guard. Okay? That's what we start to do. It's a good thing to do, so you can learn from it. Those in military, they go to uh, West Point and Sandhurst and all of those colleges to study strategy from world history so that they can learn in warfare what could happen. And so the same for us. Paul says we're not ignorant of the strategies of the devil, that we learn what he is all about. Because if you keep giving into it, God will allow you to be defeated. Okay. Notice here, it's corporate. It's your people. 
Have you ever thought that corporate sin? If God really manifested himself and began to work, I think we would start to realize that even our group has, our church has corporate sins. Probably culturally acceptable sins that we're not even aware of. I think probably materialism uh, would be a corporate sin. I think that if the Lord showed up, uh, we would be a lot more aware of that as a group to say, Lord. Corporate, it's amazing how often there is corporate acknowledgement of sin. Daniel does it. The prophets do it often. They pray for all of God's people. We are like this. Remember what even Isaiah said. I'm amongst a people of unclean lips. If, if God really works, I think we would begin to see, Lord, have mercy upon all of us. Help all of us. Verse 26, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray towards this place for us, it's Christ, not a building anymore, and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin, repent when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants. That's what we're doing. When we repent, we're saying, Lord, please forgive. Forgive us, forgive me, and teach them the good way in which they should walk. If God works, people will desire to walk in God's ways. They will want to know the truth and want to know how should I live. Verse 28. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemies besiege them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is. So he has the principle... God chastens his people by various means. Okay? So that if God loves you, he will chasten you. That's a promise in Hebrews. And God uses different, different sticks. Uh, he, he knows what each one of us need. Uh, it, it's quite amazing that because sometimes you probably think, you know, why did this happen? I could have handled anything else, but why this? Well, that's why it happened, because you can't handle it. <laughs> and God knows, so that you will be brought to your knees. Okay? There's some people, the Lord could take all your money, you'd be fine. It wouldn't be a... Yeah, you're one of those happy-go-lucky, it's not a big deal, you're not really... That's not an issue for you. Uh, others, sickness is okay, they can handle it. And others, no, financial distress is is what breaks them. Sickness is what breaks them. Loss of status is what breaks them. And another person, it's not a big deal. Because God knows what medicine to give His children. Because He knows you. And He loves you too much to let you go down the wrong path. And He gives you the right amount of medicine. He says, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people of Israel each knowing his own affliction and his own sorrow and stretching out his hands toward this house, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of the children of mankind. God knows our hearts. He knows your heart. He knows your idols. And he knows how to deal with them. 
that they may fear you and walk in your ways all the days that they live. Verse 32, likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for the sake of your great name. So God's plan all the way through has been for all nations. That was always his plan. And uh, unfortunately, the Jews became bigoted. Even the story of Jonah that we just heard this morning. Jonah portrayed that, didn't he? He didn't want to go to that foreign nation. He didn't want them to be saved. God has to work with him and say, there's all these people that don't know their left hand from their right hand. What does that mean? They don't know the truth. All these people. Do you think I should just... These are 120,000 never-dying souls. Must I just leave them because you don't like them? You don't like their culture? God is not like that. So even here, the promise was... Any nation could come if they... What, for, for what? For the sake of your great name. Because of God. They've come into God. Then Lord, hear. Remember how angry the Lord Jesus is the, when he comes to the temple. It was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. They turned it into a den of robbers. God's plan has never changed. It's always been all the nations. Verse 34, if your people go out to battle against their enemies by whatever way you shall send them and they pray to you towards this city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. This is prayer for victory in battle. For us, that's what we should be praying. Lord, help me today to fight sin. Help me today to overcome. Help me today not to fall. Help me to see the lies of the devil. My, my children and I, especially my daughter, we enjoy fishing, bass fishing. So with bass fishing and, and uh, those who do fly fishing, you, you're trying to deceive the fish. Okay? So you, we get all these lures. They're quite beautiful. Uh, they, they look like fish uh, or frogs or, or sometimes like a rat that, that goes on the top of the water. So uh, bass have huge mouths and they just attack anything that moves. So it's supposed to lure them in. It's a, they're called lures, to lure them in, to trick them. So they think, okay, there's a frog on the water. Let me take it, and then it's got a hook. And then they're caught. That's how Satan works. Okay. He's studied human nature for thousands of years. He knows us. He knows our weaknesses. He knows you. He's not omniscient or anything like that, but let me say the demonic realm understands you. They see they see how you respond in certain situations. They see all the, you know, what you look at the most on the internet. Ah. Covetousness. Interesting. We'll put some, some of those lures out. Lust. Oh, we'll put some of those lures out. Comfort. Oh, we'll put some of those lures out. And then we fall. We fail at the, the battle. Because we're not praying. We're not alert. And so here the, the prayer is, Lord, give us victory in battle. Verse 36, if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. Unfortunately, that's the truth. Uh, 
I don't understand in church history there have been these movements, sinless perfectionism. I always think, well, don't they read the Bible? Uh, John is very clear. If anyone says they have no sin, they are lying and the truth is not in them. Okay? It's as blatant as that. And he's talking to believers. Unfortunately, we are going to sin. But the, the Bible knows that. Solomon knew that. Scriptures know that. It's not a license to sin. But it is good to know that God understands and God knows that we will sin. And there is provision for that. And there's consequences. But the problem that what the Solomon cries out, if they repent and plead with you, verse 38, if they repent with all their mind and with all your heart, then please deliver them. And so I think one of the primary marks when God shows up, when God manifests himself in a special way, is that we will be aware of our sin. If you're not aware of your sin, that's a frightening place to be. If you're here and you're like, this is not really relevant for me because I'm quite a good person. Um, you know people who say that I'm not perfect, you know. They like to say, I'm not perfect. But, you know, I'm... <laughs> I'm part of a charity organization. Um, I'm on the board. Uh, <laughs> uh, God is not working in your heart. Okay? That should frighten you. You should fall on your knees and say, Lord, that, I, mean, I think just even start there and say, Lord, help me. I'm not even concerned about my sin. Do something. Have mercy. Make me. I, that this week I've been obviously in this text, and so it's been a real prayer. Like, wouldn't that be amazing if God began to work and we were so we so aware of our sin, and you you already see it coming a mile away. Your conscience is so tender to the things of God. Not as we heard in Bible hour, not to legalism and silly things, but to to what God's word says. Tender quick to repent, to own sin, always walking with the Lord, hating sin so much, it's an evidence that God is working. Jonathan Edwards, he wrote a book, The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God. Because they had some revivals, for the audio, I'm doing quotation marks. <laughs> and he thought they were real revivals, and then it was not lasting. And so he began to do a lot of research. What, and he wrote this book, The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God. What are the true marks of a revival? What are the real signs that God is working? Because he goes through all those things, the things I mentioned. Emotion. Emotion is not a sign that God is working. You can watch Bambi and be emotional. Okay? It's not a sign that God is working. We can be, all be crying. I could tell you a sad story about a dog that dies or whatever, and we're all crying at the end. It means nothing. It doesn't mean that God is working. People manipulate emotions all the time. And he went through all of these things. Well, what is real? He said, number one, Jesus is exalted in the revival. Christ will be exalted. Number two, the Holy Spirit acts against the influence of Satan's kingdom by preaching sin and repentance. What he realizes is that it's a focus on sin. He then goes on to unpack, 
A sign will be you're sensitive to the dreadful nature of sin. You're sensitive to it. You're not callous. Your heart is not hard. You're not, it's just the way I'm wired. Get over it. Deal with it. Your sensitivity to God's holy wrath and judgment for sin. Personal awareness of one's own miserable condition. By miserable, it's old old English. They don't mean uh, my my gas heater is finished and I'm cold and I'm miserable. Uh, they mean I'm aware of the misery of sin. Okay. I, I, the horror and that sin cannot satisfy. I'm aware of that. And then he says, people become aware of God's pity and help in Christ. And really, that's the love of Christ. They become aware of the love of Christ, the hope that there is in Christ. But before we move on to that point, ask yourself that question. Do, are you sensitive about your sin? Have you gone backwards, maybe? You're just sort of a plateau. You know, it's, it's flat. You just sort of... My experience is there's no real plateaus in the Christian life. We're either going up or down. Okay. Uh, you're never just sort of flat. If you're flat, you're going backwards. Okay. Cry out to God. But I want to, I want to be sensitive. I want an awareness of my sin. Work. When God, I, cry out, let's cry out to him, Lord, work, uh, manifest yourself that in, in our city there would be an awareness of sin. God has done this throughout history. Why not again? And it's also interesting in, in my own study, especially as a teenager in my early 20s, I read all the books I could get on revival. Uh, it's not something we can manipulate. Okay? It's not like, okay, we need to get, get, get a tent on the street corner. And have a revival meeting. That's man-made. We can't manipulate God. We can't twist his arm. It's not, well, let's add an extra five prayer meetings and then God will do something. No. You cannot manipulate. God is sovereign. But we need to be ready. We need to be, say, Lord, here we are. Please. We're asking you as, as a, a good God. Work. Bear your arm. Save. In, in, in the history of revivals, when they interview people who've experienced it, they say, what did you guys do differently? And they said, nothing. They preached God's word at the same meetings, but God worked in a powerful way by His Spirit. Okay. And people came under the conviction of sin. And you can go and read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards as an example. Uh, it was a different culture, so it's more melodramatic, but one of the things is they were... <laughs> They were holding on to the pillars, like those pillars there. Crying out because they said they felt like they were being pulled into hell. And they were holding on to the bits of furniture around them that God would have mercy upon them and save them. That's the awareness of sin and God's judgment. And Jonathan Edwards was not a dynamic preacher or anything. He made me look like, I don't know, Jimmy Swaggart would. <laughs> He just read his sermons like this. Okay, we know, we know this. <laughs> and God worked. Okay? God worked 
And he had preached that sermon many times before. And then suddenly God worked. And there was an awareness of sin. Are you sensitive to sin? If you are, it's a sign that God is working. If you're not yet in the kingdom, but you're aware of guilt and condemnation, praise the Lord. It's a good place to be. If your heart is hard and cold and you feel nothing over your sin, it's the most horrific place to be. Don't harden your heart even as you sit there. And then the next thing that is evident when God manifests himself is an awareness of the love of God. An awareness of the love of God. I told you earlier that this prayer, chapter 6, is bracketed by these two accounts of the presence of God. But mixed in with those two accounts, we find the priests singing in chapter 5. And this is what they say. We, all the priests gather themselves and the Levitical singers from verse 11 of chapter 5 and the trumpeters and singers and... They begin to sing in praise to the Lord. And this is their song. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Chapter 7, verse 1, jump down there. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, we know that the fire came down and the priest couldn't go in. Verse 3, when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple... They bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. If God is truly working, there will be an awareness of sin and of the love of God. The phrase steadfast love occurs five times in this section. And so the Holy Spirit wants us to know that. That's a focus, the steadfast love of God. And how is that shown to us? It's in Christ. It's in the cross. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. How do you know God loves you? Look to Calvary. Look to that leading sacrifice. Look to the Son of God broken on your behalf. The crown of thorns bearing the curse from Genesis of thorns and thistles. His head is crushed by the curse. And he never sinned. But we sinned. We should be cursed. We should be damned. But he is cursed and forsaken. Cursed is anyone who hangs upon a tree. It's Old Testament law. And Jesus Christ hangs upon a tree and he is cursed, forsaken. Bearing the wrath of God in our place. You see, if in these different traditions... In church history, if all we do is focus on sin, and there are churches that are proud of that, you know, we preach it, we preach the truth, and, and people get used to getting hidings every Sunday, and they go away, they become sadists, they enjoy it. <laughs> we got it, we got it this morning. Yo, he can preach, he told us straight. <laughs> I'm like, okay, but. I never enjoyed getting hidings. I wouldn't go away from my dad's hidings. Like, woof, my dad, wow. <laughs> Yo, he can give them. Uh, <laughs> I mean, what? Are you nuts? I, that's just sadistic. Like, you sh your heart should be broken. But they become like that. And that's what they, they do. They just lambaste and they're condemning and derogatory. And people get used to it. And then they visit another church that talks about the love of Christ. And they're like, oh, so weak and flaky here. 
they don't tell it straight. All of these things, they become self-righteous. That's what will happen. If all we focus on is sin, what's it going to lead to? Self-pity? Feel sorry for ourselves? We're going to be, some will become condemned. Maybe some of you are there. Don't, don't stay there. You're condemned. You're like, yeah, I, I blew it this week. This week has been a nightmare. I thought I've, I, I haven't fought at all. I just fell every day. I should stop coming to church. What's the point? No. And then others of you become self-righteous because you think, I'm actually doing quite well. I'm not like that tax collector. I tithe, I fast, I do all of those things. If all we do is focus on sin, that's what will happen. Some of you will become condemned, some of you will become self-righteous. If all we do is focus on the love of God, and we never talk about sin, that leads to sentimentality, a sentimental view of love, which is just sort of a feeling. It's not personal, it's not relational, it's not costly. Love is costly. True love is costly. Sentimental love is not costly. It's a Santa Claus. It's, it's a grandfather love. You know, uh, grandfathers and grandparents, whatever, they don't really give hidings and stuff like that. They don't discipline. They just like come with presents and sweets and then go home. Okay? It becomes sentimental and it becomes licentious. What do I mean by that? It means you, don't, it means you can live how you like. But on Sunday morning you get a nice feeling that God loves you. But you can live like the devil during the week because there's never a talk about sin. When God properly shows up and works, you will have both. Both. That's what Edward said, isn't that right? An awareness of the love and pity of Christ along with the sensitivity to sin. God is at work if you see your sin, but you don't stay there. You repent of it and you look to Christ. You look to the gospel. The good news of what God has done in Christ for us. Those two things together mean that God is working. And let's cry out to him that he would do that more and more. Save more and that's what we always need. To be aware of our sins. Soft hearts. Quick to take responsibility. Quick to confess. Quick to turn. And quick to turn to Christ. And look to him. Amen. Let's let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this account. We thank you for the many times in history where you have worked in powerful ways. Even as we look at the Gospels, Lord, we see that people were aware of their sins. Think of the Mary who came to you weeping. washing your feet, aware of her sin, and yet you you showed her love and forgiveness. We also think of the Pharisees, Lord, as you, you did show them their sin. You were working, and yet they hardened their hearts. Instead of humbling themselves, they sought to destroy you. May no one have that heart here, Lord. We do cry out to you, Holy Spirit, please work. Please help us to be sensitive to sin and help us to know your love more and more. 
In Jesus' name, amen.